millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, are you a confident person or do you lack confidence? Are you born with it or can you learn it? How big an impact does confidence have on your life and your career? Confidence, I think I can confidently say, is something to be valued, particularly if you don't have it. But where does it come from? And I suppose, crucially, is there any chance you could bottle it? How Confidence Works is a book that delves right to the heart of the matter, and its author, Ian Robertson, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin, is my guest today. Ian, you're very welcome. Hello, Mick. Ian, if we could start at the beginning. Confidence, nature or nurture, are you born with it? Like almost everything in our lives, there's a bit of both there, but let me just explain a bit how confidence works. So you have two five-year-old children, say two girls in the school. They're both equal reading intellectual abilities, but one of them has a tiny bit more confidence than the other. So the difference between them at five are non-existent. But take the slightly more confident five-year-old what she will do is, because she's more slightly more confident in her abilities, or her, she will more likely ask that question or try out that new thing. And once she does that, that gives her a, a certain advantage. That advantage then gets built on. And what you have then is like compound interest. It's like an exponential curve. So by the time that these two girls are 25, there's a, there's a gulf between them. Now, that initial difference may have, may have been partly genetic. Actually, the biggest, biggest influence on confidence is your class, your socioeconomic status. That's just huge. <laughs> so that probably swamps any genetic differences. Um, but that's the way, the way confidence works. There may be some nature factors producing small differences, but then because of the way confidence works, these magnify themselves exponentially over a lifetime. And you say that social class is probably the biggest determinant, Ian. What about upbringing, parents, the, a parent's capacity to instill confidence in the child? Yeah, well, one of the sources of confidence is having someone, particularly a parent, believing in you. If someone has confidence in you and communicates that confidence to you, that is going to be a huge asset in terms of your own confidence. Even though you may be as I did, come from a very working class background. And I know what I'm talking about personally here. Um, uh, you know, that having a parent that believes in you. And one of the, one of, one of the enemies of, of, of um, confidence in children is when, is their parents' attitude to their children's failure. So parents, parents who tend to worry and fear about their children failing, maybe not just academically, maybe socially or in other ways, that fear, even though they maybe don't ex consciously express it, 
that fear communicates itself to the children and it creates in them what, we, what Carl Dweck, the great psychologist, calls a fixed mindset. It gives this mindset that they have this, this thing, this ability, which is fragile and they doubt. And it means that if they do have a setback, they fail at an exam or get rejected in a relationship, that's, that fixed mindset makes that a much more traumatic event for them because it's seen as a threat confirmation of this threat or maybe I'm not bright or maybe I'm not lovable um, and so par parents who who can, can really really undercut their children's confidence by being worried all the time about their children failing if they if the, the parent has a real confidence in their child expresses that confidence that's an enormous asset for children and will give them a give them a, a resilience and ability to cope with setbacks and failure that, that's really uh, huge because how we learn, one of the biggest sources of confidence is um, doing stuff in spite of adversity, in spite of failure, is just getting through stuff. And get what's called mastery, get mastering, get just doing the stuff in spite of feeling miserable, in spite of feeling anxious, in spite of feeling like a failure. If you just do the stuff and get through it, that's an incredibly powerful source of uh, confidence. No, that's very interesting, Ian, because just coming to a, a, an anecdote you've in the book about Padraig Harrington, the golfer, but just presage that, just to put it this way to you, you said about the parent having confidence in the child. Does it matter if the parent has confidence in the child as long as the parent gives the impression to the child that they have confidence in them? And I think that leads me on to, you might deal with that and that leads Possibly, hopefully, into the party Harrington um, nugget. Well, that's it's interesting. But, you know, children, children are pretty smart. So, so, yes, you may have doubts in your own mind, but just expressing that confidence, doing, doing, expressing the confidence, just saying the words is, is, a, is a great second best. Better still if you really believe it, because children are very good at picking up subtle signs. And, and if you're living with someone... It's much harder to conceal the internal state. But the, the, yeah, the Porrick Harrington story is a very interesting one. Um, he, he was at the British Open uh, on the cusp of winning it, second last hole, 2007 in Carnoustie. And famously, he, he, he describes this, um, you know, he describes this, he was teeing off with really assured that he was going to beat Sergio Garcia and pick up the claret jug. And did he not? And say so he said something happened at the top of the swing. And I hit the ball. I don't know what it was, but I hit the ball and it went right into the Barry Burn, into the stream that goes through the, the river that goes through the golf course. And he was okay. And he just walked up, took the penalty shot, hit it again, and would you believe it, back into the Barry Burn. And he said he describes how he just felt, he just mentally felt himself falling apart. Just the, 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 suddenly the claret jug was shattered in front of his eyes, the feeling of like a complete fool, feeling humiliated that he should do this in front of millions of people on television and thousands there. And uh, just feeling, saying all these things, oh, you're an idiot, you can't do that. And his caddy, Ronan Flood, he 
They, they walked up the long, lonely walk. They passed Sergio Garcia crossing a bridge and the, the damned Barry Byrne. Sergio Garcia gives him a big grin. You know, he thought he was going to win. And um, uh, he, and Ronan Flood, the whole time, took his club and he just kept saying to him this, you are the best chipper and putter in the world. You are the best chipper and putter in the world. And he kept saying this monotonously, almost hypnotically. And Harrington says, if I'd had the club, I would have hit him with it, you know. <laughs> but by the time they got to take the next penalty shot, a chip required a chip and a putt, he did so beautifully. And he ended up um, squaring the match with Garcia and having a playoff. And he won it. That's not the end of the story, because yeah. there was all the... The, the press stuff and the celebrations and the awards and they didn't see each other, Flood and Harrington. Till later that evening, they get into their limo to go back to the hotel. And Harrington turns to Flood and says, you know, Ronan, you just saved my bacon out there. You know, after I hit these two shots, I didn't think I had a chance. And he saw that Flood was laughing. He said, why are you laughing? He said, I didn't think you had a chance either. So what Flood was doing, he was just saying the words. He was faking it, uh, which you can do in a situation like that. It's harder if you're a parent living with a yeah, child. that's <laughs> a good point, yeah. But he was faking it. He was just saying, um, and what he was doing, he was essentially hacking Harrington's brain. And he was getting him so that all, all that was in his mind was no thoughts of great failure, but nor were there thoughts of great success. It was He was just controlling his attention. And what's in your attention is what's in your consciousness. And his attention was focused on a set of the behaviours, chipping and putting, that he was really good at and he had done thousands of times. And because he was only focusing on them, his mind wasn't going walkabout to, to thoughts of great success and then thoughts of great failure and the anxiety that that produces, which interferes with brain function. So he was essentially controlling attention, using language to control attention and therefore to control what the brain could do. And the brain, all that was in Harrington's mind was nothing to do with the claret jug, forgot he was in the open. It was just chipping and putting, which he could do. And all the memories of past successes there were, were the only memories that were in attention. And all he was paying attention to, he wasn't looking at the crowds, he wasn't looking over at the clubhouse. All he was looking at was this chip and this putt. And that's a, a, a real good example of how, yes, lack of confidence can be a series of verbal habits that we learn, uh, particularly catastrophic thinking, I'm no good. You know, oh, I just forget. Harrington could have said that, he said, oh, I just can't cope with this. You know, I'm just, I'm just no good. These big things you say about yourself that are permanent things about yourself, they, they are self-fulfilling prophecies. So if you can shape your, shape your attention through language and through imagery to focus on the behavior, the next, the next thing you have to do, the next goal, and keep your attention focused on that, that's a huge way of ensuring that you will get a successful response. So he then, he did that chip 
Because he did the chip, he did the putt. Because he did the chip and the putt, he didn't mess up the next hole. Because he didn't make up, mess up the next hole, he was able to then you know, to play in, in the, the player. So that's the great thing about confidence. It's a, it's a belief about your ability to do something. It's, it's linked, confidence is, is, is linked to action, which is its secret sauce. And because you're expecting in your mind to successfully complete an action, that your, your brain treats that as if you actually had succeeded in it. And so it lifts your mood. It's a natural little mini antidepressant, an anti-anxiety drug. And therefore it makes your tune, helps your brain tune to make it more likely you will actually do the thing successfully. And if you do that, the great source of success is success. It's called the winner effect. And in that example, Ian, I suppose, flood the caddy by repeating to Harrington, you are the best, you are the best. Did it sort of provide Harrington with the kind of space to just concentrate on the action. No, it did the opposite. The problem in, in Harrington's mind was there was too much space. Right, 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 right. I'm with the, pro- the problem when he, when, he, when he teed off, the problem was he'd allowed himself to think of a great success. But the way the brain works is associatively, if you think of great success, automatically it will generate thoughts of great failure as well in most cases. And one said, hold on a minute, I'm presuming what happened in his brain at a semi-unconscious level was I could screw this up. (laughs) And once that thought comes into your mind, your brain generates more noradrenaline, which increases anxiety, which interferes with the the circuits controlling the golf shots. And that's why he, he, he did these two ridiculous shots. It was because he had allowed himself too much space. What What flood did, was to actually narrow that space, that space of attention. Yeah, and the mere act of being told that and talking in that manner, as you said, that that of itself can have an impact. There used to be a skit there on radio a while back about um, uh, the businessman Bill Cullen, because Bill made a point to saying he got up in the morning, he looked in the mirror and he told himself he was a great guy, you know, and they, they, there was a skit about it. But stand back and view it in a particular way and... Perhaps that's the type of thing that induces you with confidence. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's probably better, better than saying I'm a great guy. It's probably better saying I can do this, whatever it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you can moderate it a bit. Because self-esteem, self-esteem has its own, self-esteem is not confidence. Yes, that's what I said. There is a difference between confidence and self-esteem, isn't there? Yeah. But, but to go, you know, particularly if someone's feeling low or, or feeling just fed up or demotivated, just saying the words, you know, Ian, looking in the mirror, I can get through today. I can just one day, I'm going to get through today. Or more positively, you know, if it's not in a condition where you're feeling anxious or defeated, um, you're maybe, it's, it's an interview for a job or a, a big presentation or something, it's like, you know, I can do this. And, you know, see, what, what you're doing there is you're, you're tricking your brain into what's called the challenge mindset, where you're anticipating success, which makes your, again, as I said before, it makes your brain generate a little surge of dopamine in, in the brain's reward network. Uh, you're anticipating success, and that acts as an anti-anxiety drug. Whereas if you go in saying, oh, God, I'm going to muff the, I'm going to, I could screw this up. Oh, I can't do this. That does the opposite. 
It increases anxiety, which disrupts the function and acts as a self-fulfilling prophecy in a negative way. Back again just to that idea of action, Ian. As you said, action is so connected with it. And that first action, you get you gave the example of the two five-year-olds. That first action, that's first willingness to go and take on something is the most crucial because if you get over that, then that gives you the little bit of a, a lift off, so to speak, in order to face the next one. Absolutely, Mick. And particularly if you do that, if you take that action in spite of feeling nervous. Yes. <laughs> if you do it in spite of opposition, yes. that, that, that produces a kind of resilience and says, look, you know, that this feeling doesn't define me. Because anxiety is a great, it's a great enemy of confidence. And confidence is a great antidote to anxiety. But that doesn't mean to say you, you, you're anxiety free. No, you know, courage is, is doing stuff in spite of the fear that you feel. Um, and so confidence is a kind of courage. Um, but it's also an act of will. It's an act of will. It's, it's a belief. It's a belief that, you, you know, you're, you're, there's never a hundred percent secure. You can never be a hundred percent secure that yes, I can do this thing. But um, it's, it's a bridge to the future. So you're you're projecting yourself into the future, saying yes, I can do this. And if you adopt the trappings of that, if you square your shoulders, uh, hold your the posture will prevent you developing the kind of defeatist posture, which can subtract from these feelings of confidence. So you adopt the posture, you say the words, you try and interpret the butterflies in your stomach and your fast breathing, say, you know what? That's not anxiety, that's excitement. Because the, the physiological symptoms of anxiety and excitement are identical. They only become one of these emotions when the, the words you put on it. Um, so if you, if you adopt the posture, you say the words and you take the action, taking the action, doing the stuff in spite of the anxiety, that will then give you a tiny increase in confidence to be able to do that again. And then you get this exponential benefit effect of, of confidence. But the problem with anxiety is anxious people across the world, because anxiety tends to make you retreat to avoid, on average, anxious people where people who are chronically anxious do less stuff. Yeah. They text their friends and say, oh, no, I, I, no, I've got a headache. I'm not coming out tonight. They don't turn up for the interview. They, uh, you know, they, they don't make that phone call. They avoid. They do less stuff. If you do less stuff, you get less opportunity for mastery experiences that will lift your mood, lower your anxiety and build your confidence. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. What then, Ian, about how does the anxious person get past that to do the action? So, critically first thing, absolute precondition, is not to believe that your anxiety is a thing is to see it as a process. In other words, if you believe that your anxiety is something you're endowed with, that's programmed into you, that you've inherited, that belief 
will undercut any attempts you make to gradually learn to control your anxiety. So you first of all have to say, have to address your beliefs about where that, what the sources of this anxiety is. The second thing is to, to, to learn to gain a tiny bit of control over your anxiety. Because a precondition for feeling confident is feeling confident about your own emotional state. If you feel out of control over your own emotional state, it's very hard for you to feel in control of your behaviour and your actions and your success in the world. And so there's many different ways you can control your emotions, your anxiety. One is by breathing. If you just learn to, because when we're anxious, we tend to breathe in a shallow way. We often unconsciously hold our breath. That increases carbon dioxide levels in our blood and that changes our brain function in a way to make us more anxious. So if we can just remember to just breathe in for four and out for six, and learn to do that. That few seconds, that's the most precise pharmaceutical you can take to control your anxiety. And if you can just learn to do that, that gives you a little sense of control. And control gives you a little sense of confidence. So that's one. The other thing is your thoughts. You've just failed. Someone's just, a relationship's just broken up. You've just failed an exam. You've just lost a job. What words are you saying to yourself? Are you, you know, are you, are you doing a road and flood? Or are you doing a, you're a failure, you're unlovable, yeah. okay? Because these words, the words you say to yourself, sometimes without even being fully aware of them, will subtract this. If you, particularly if you say big words about yourself, rather than saying, uh, God, that was a tough relationship, you know, what, what can I learn from that? Or what went wrong in that exam? I, I probably didn't study enough. Or it's maybe not my subject. Maybe I should be changing subject. Something like that. Don't say big, fixed things about yourself. And the third thing is action. If you're feeling anxious. It's just to, to, to set a goal for yourself. It could be tiny. It could be, it could be going into the coffee room for just five minutes. <laughs> if you're feeling socially anxious. Going in for five minutes and just saying, okay, I'm going to do that. In spite of the fact that I feel anxious and feel as if everyone's looking at me. Um, I'm just going to set that goal and do something in spite of feeling anxious, okay? Um, so take, taking action is yeah. just an incredible antidote. Absolutely. Now, on the other end of the scale, Ian, overconfidence. First, first question I have, is it always a bad thing? Well, you know, it's a two-edged sword, Mick. Eamon de Valera and Winston Churchill both had to be overconfident, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough said. Yeah, makes sense there. Because yeah, the yeah, future yeah. is uncertain, particularly in a complex situation, particularly if you're a leader, you have to project the confidence to inspire others because it then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And most people who are not depressed and not chronic pessimists are slightly more optimistic and overconfident than, than reality would justify. And that's what gets us up in the morning. There would be no one would ever start a business if they weren't slightly overconfident. <laughs> so a bit of overconfidence is probably quite a healthy thing because it's a motivator, a mood lifter and an anxiety reducer. Um, and on, on average, men tend to be slightly more overconfident than women. 
And that can create problems because overconfidence buys you status and helps you and it's more likely to make you dominant and, and can inhibit the other person. So, you know, overconfidence is a very tricky, it's like nuclear power. It's, it's something that can have great benefits, but can have huge downsides as well. But it has to be kept in, in very reasonable limits. Once you get uh, a lot of overconfidence, too much success, we know what happens when it goes to people's heads. I mean, you don't have to mention Donald Trump, you know, but I will. Yeah. Uh, Boris Johnson, that kind of, that kind of hubris that leads to, uh, it, it makes people, their morality declines, their empathy declines, their self-awareness declines, their judgment declines, um, their narcissism increases, um, and 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 they they, they cause. Havoc in the world, particularly, you know, the bigger their power and the bigger yeah. the sources, and and uh, you know the the overconfidence of the financial world prior to two thousand and eight, uh, you know the the gamblers on Wall Street and in London. I mean, that was just the absolute um, dangerous, destructive, ghastly overconfidence. It's mainly men are more vulnerable to it than women. Which is why in, in the, my book concludes that the, one of the solutions to virtually all of the world's problems is we need many we need a greater balance between men and women in positions of power and and women's confidence is something that is is in all of our interest to 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 raise up and to and to and to and to cherish and and, and foster. Particularly, as you say, yeah, th- those instances, those big occasion instances of overconfidence, it was all to do with to do with male overconfidence. Moving it on from there, Ian, in terms of national confidence, you want to put it that way. For example, I'm of an age that when I was growing up and, and even into our early 20s, you know, I think looking back in, in general terms rather than specific to people, there wasn't much confidence there. We didn't, I'd say, as a group, as, as a demographic, have much confidence. You look at the kids today, when I say kids, teenagers into their early 20s, they appear from this vantage to have a lot of confidence. Two things, is that associated with the socioeconomic fortunes of the country? And is that real confidence that they have? I think it is. I think it is, Mick. Um, and I do think it's, I think it is partly because there's a sense collectively that, um, and even though I'm a, a 21-year blow into Ireland, I, I say we, <laughs> there's a collective pride in having done well in spite of adversity, whether it's the adversity of the 1950s or the adversity of 2010, 11, 12. We got through it. We gritted our teeth and got through it. And that that sense of mastering something in spite of adversity, of just doing it, of getting through it. And I know it was hell for many people, but that is a huge source of confidence. And of course, confidence is not just individual. There is such a thing as collective confidence. Uh, the sense, the belief that we can do it, not just I can do it. And, you know, I, I, I do think that Getting through the 1950s and, and coming out of you know to the Celtic Tiger and everything, getting through the 2008 crash, and then getting through the pandemic with one of the lowest death rates in the world. I mean, so there's a pride and a sense of, yeah, we did it together. We can do it. I think we should. It's really, really powerful. And you mentioned the pandemic. 
Would you see, again, th- that national psyche type of thing, would you see coming out of that in terms of confidence, would it have been battered by it? Or how would you perceive that? I, I think, I th- I, I, my hunch is that actually it will have been increased by it. That the pandemic, the Ireland's getting through the pandemic, albeit with a huge national debt, which was inevitable, um, but with a, with a, a, a you know, a low death rate comparatively, and uh, I, I think it will increase. I think it will increase our resilience and our confidence. I do. And I suppose in the same vein, then if you look at a country like the US in particular, not so much the UK, I think to be fair, but the US, you know, they've obviously had a far worse pandemic, and then that lack of confidence coming out of it, apart from the specifics of uh, involved in, in in economics, whatever. That lack of confidence, you'd wonder, is that going to impact huge? That again, if you compare it to the some of the East Asian nations, for instance, that did very well, you'd wonder that element of confidence will will that reconfigure sort of uh, world powers and what have you. I don't doubt that it will, Mick. The the problem is if you think of America, you know, the New Deal with Roosevelt, you know, coming out, <clears throat> or post Second World War, back in the country pulling together to fight a war and then coming together to build the economy again and then thriving through the, you know, through the 60s. Um, that has gone in America now and you have these, this, fract- this complete absence of collective confidence except within tribes, huge tribes, the Republican tribe and the, you know, the Democrat tribe. And that, um, you know, I, I do think that you know, the, I've read the Chinese analysts have have seen the handling of the pandemic, the lack of cohesion, the lack of will, collective will, if you like, and collective confidence. You know, what's the equivalent of J.F. Kennedy, nineteen sixty one, saying we'll put a man in the moon before the end of the decade? What's what's the equivalent rallying call for a whole nation just now? There isn't one. And I think that I think the East Asian, I think there is a, a loss of confidence in America's collective confidence. Yeah, yeah. I suppose even though, you're right. Even apart from the pandemic, as well as the natural progression of things, taking it back, just again, Ian. Finally, it's just just thinking there, the, the sporting analogy in particular, and the idea of flood, the caddy, and how he's able to, in that instance, you know, be so important in instilling confidence in Harrington. But if you take the sports manager. And there's a great thing always about, you know, uh, Alex Ferguson, I suppose, being an obvious example, being able to impart his confidence to a team. And I suppose you could equally apply it to business or whatever. That ability to uh, not just have confidence yourself, but to be able to impart that, it's something special, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, Alex Ferguson, um, (laughs) he was an amazing character. I mean, he... Before he went to Manchester United, he, he took on, he was in Aberdeen. Yeah. <laughs> For as long as he was there, Aberdeen were the league champions in Scotland, which was unheard of. Unheard Absolutely, of. yeah. The moment he left, you know, they, they didn't, weren't. And so what, what was he doing? He didn't have particularly good players in Aberdeen. So he was managing to harness the collective confidence of a group of young men. Now, I think the one way he did that first of all he was incredibly 
authoritarian. He maintained a rigid hierarchy. And if anyone, <laughs> any big player, started to threaten his primitive dominance of the hierarchy, they were out. David Beckham, yeah. <laughs> you know. Ultimately, Roy Keane, even his, his right-hand man. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Yeah. The moment there was any threat to the, the hierarchy, to his dominance hierarchy, they were gone, no, no matter how talented they were. Um, but he was also incredibly supportive, you know, incredibly emotionally supportive. And he, you know, he came with them just confident that he could do that, that he could create a team. And then we know there's been experiments done. If you have a confident leader of an even a temporarily formed basketball team, if that leader expresses confidence in the team, that team scores more baskets than than basketball teams who have a, a leader who's not confident in the team. So yeah, collective confidence comes a lot from the leader. Um, leaders have a huge effect on that. Now, there's different kinds of leadership, so it needn't be the case that the <laughs> <laughs> they all have to be an Alex Ferguson. You know, he, he had his own yeah, particular yeah, style. Yeah. But yeah, because there's some leaders like Gandhi, for instance, where where it was by example, it was by self, um, self-abnegation and, and uh, moral example. So there's different different kinds of leadership. But yeah, the leaders are critical in fostering collective confidence. And I, I will put on the record, we've been very fortunate with the leadership we've had in the last... Um, well, since to you know, since the 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 big crash, I've been very fortunate in in having leaders to get us through these things. And and you know, I know that flop faults, and I, I'm not being political here because I don't have any history that way. I'm just saying Ireland compared to across the water, compared to compared to many places, Ireland and Germany, for instance, have been extremely fortunate. You know. Yeah, I, su- I suppose the thing there is you don't appreciate till you see what has happened in other countries. And I suppose the, the other thing, and I, it's a subject that fascinates me, the whole area of confidence. I mean, Jez, if you could battle it, to be something else altogether. Well, <laughs> you know what? Um, the most confident country in the world I know is is Israel. Now, I know there's enormous, and, and you know, you... Yeah. yeah, 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 but just in terms of... If you're of- a Palestinian in Israel... And Arab yeah. in Israel, that's different kettle of fish. So there is a there is a, a tribalism going on. But by God, Israel, you know, the economy has just thrived there. And it's because of, of a lot of it's this self collective self-belief that we can do this. And and uh, you know, I I I do believe that Ireland has a bit of that, not nearly as much. I come from Scotland originally. I believe Scotland is an example of an extremely unconfident uh, country, very un- unconfident. Um, uh, and so there is, I think, it, nation, nations vary a lot, and to the extent that they have it, it's the most precious uh, economic and social uh, resource. And, and just, it's funny you say that, Ian, putting that either for the collective or the individual, therefore, having come out of adversity, is that uh, a platform that can uh, instill confidence? It is, you see, absolutely, Mick. And I think, I think um, if, if people could understand that, and a lot of people do, but some people don't, if people could understand that there, there are very few adverse circumstances, there are some that are ter- so terrible, you, you know, you can't, 
but there are very few adverse adverse circumstances where you cannot learn from them and take and and take some uh, um, opportunity to 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 get by getting through them to build your confidence, and and uh, I I think if we had if we had I mean that 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 really struck me as what happened in 2010, 11, 12 in Ireland that people just they sucked it up, they grit their teeth, and and it was awful, but they did it, and 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 getting if, if to the extent that you embrace adversity, you don't like it, but the, to the extent that you embrace it and tackle and and to tackle it as a challenge. So so here's here's a here's a, a tip for confidence. So um, often we're faced with some adversity in the world, something we don't like. We lose our job, we fail an exam, we, you know, we have something horrible happening to us. And um, <clears throat> so we spend our time, we wake up in the middle of the night, our minds whirring, trying to solve that problem. How are we going to solve that? You know, have solved this relationship, solve that problem, you know. And then, and, and that can make you feel defeated and exhausted and, and anxious. But sometimes there are some situations where you say, well, actually, my ability to solve this problem is limited. Um, I'm going to have to wait this out or, or hope that something better comes along. In the meantime, I'm changing my goal to an internal one. And my goal is to, to get through this emotionally, is to be courageous in the face of this adversity that I don't yet see a solution to in the external world but my, my I'm changing my goal to an internal one is to is to gain some control over my anxiety in the face of this of 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 putting a brave face on it of, of not you know of and if you set internal goals like that for yourself what that does is it gives you small success experiences because you've 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 called the shots by defining the goals internally, that lifts your mood, lowers your anxiety, that builds your confidence, and that makes it by taking that as the Persian poet, Afghanistani poet Rumi said, the the, the path only appears with the first step. So by adopting that internal goal, taking that first step internally, you can sometimes see paths appear to you that would not have appeared. Had you maintained trying to your mind trying to solve the external goal, so there's sometimes retreating from the external reality that you're finding difficult to solve, and setting yourself goals for your own um, courageous or, or or at least resilient uh, emotional response to the external situation. That can be a, a very powerful way of of building, slowly building your confidence. Ian, on that tip. Thank you very much for joining us today. How Confidence Works by Professor Ian Robertson's published by Transworld. Ian, as I say, thank you. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Stay by the wall and keep the head up. The world is your oyster. You can do it. Good luck. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. 
That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.